Thanks, Father Aaron. Yeah, so that's right. So about four years ago, my son, Matt, who's my second oldest child, first oldest son, of, um, told me that he and his wife, Tammy, and their two kids, Alana and MJ, were moving to Papua New Guinea. He's an emergency medicine doctor, uh, so he works at a hospital there called Kujib Nazarene Hospital. So I am always um, really fascinated with anything about Papua New Guinea. I want to learn as much as I can about this country. So it's actually on the island of New Guinea, and it's pretty much split in half. And one side is the island of Papua, which is uh, basically a colony of Indonesia. On the other side is Papua New Guinea, which gained its independence um, and is now an independent nation, about the size of California. So I'm always interested in this. So I picked up a book recently uh, written by a cultural anthropologist named Don Kulik called A Death in the Rainforest, How a Language and a Way of Life Came to an End in Papua New Guinea. So I thought, I'm going to read this. Sounds really interesting. I'm going to especially pay attention to what he has to say about Christianity in Papua New Guinea. So <clears throat> here's what he says. Here's a couple snippets from page 250. As soon as the Second World War ended, missionaries popped up, converting villagers to Christianity and convincing them that their ancestral ways needed to be abandoned because they were satanic. Then he goes on to say, throughout the 20th century and continuing today, villagers have been exploited, deceived, lied to, humiliated, cheated, and robbed by pr practically every outside person. And he would include in there multinational corporations and mission organizations. And then towards the end of the book, he says this, in my darkest moments, I sometimes think that the only practical knowledge that Christianity and Western education has given the villagers of Gupan, where he's, he's studying this language, is proficiency in how to beat their children. So... That is one opinion. I'm going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. But as I was reading this book, I thought, you know, I really like that he's raising this issue. This is a really important issue. And the issue is, is the gospel, which literally means good news, is it good news? Is it good news? Has it brought good news to people? Has it brought good news to the poor? Has it brought good news to people outside of Western culture? Has it brought good news to Papua New Guinea? Has it led to human flourishing? Or has it brought more oppression, colonialism, and bad news? It's a really big question. And I won't address everything, but I do think... When Father Aaron asked me to preach on this text, and it was World Mission Sunday, and to sort of weave a global mission theme in here, I thought, at first I thought, well, that's really a hard task, Father Aaron. But, you know, the more I looked at this passage, the more I realized, actually, it's a great passage to address that question. So what we're going to look at is three things. Really simple outline. The spread of the gospel, the content of the gospel, and the fruit of the gospel. They're all here in this passage. So first of all, the spread of the gospel. So at the beginning of verse 5 in Colossians, as Paul's writing to this, this small group of believers in uh, this city of Colossae, he says, he makes this really astounding claim. He says, you have, in verse 5, the end of verse 5, he says, you have heard the, before in the word of truth, the gospel, so the gospel is the word of truth, not just one of many truths, but the word of truth, 
The gospel, literally meaning the good news of the incarnation, the life, the teachings, the miracles, the love, the truth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming of the Spirit, ushered into the world through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the gospel. And then he makes this incredible claim in verse 6, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, why is that an incredible claim? Because when Paul wrote this letter, historians estimate that there were probably maybe 5,000 followers of Jesus in the entire world. And they were all in the Roman Empire. And the Roman, so that historians estimate that that was, they were probably 0.01 something percent of the population at that time. So how could Paul say it's bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world? I mean, is that a hyperbole? Is that just ridiculous exaggeration? Well, actually, if you think of it this way, Paul saw something. He saw something. He intuited something. He intuited that the, the gospel, the growth of the church was going to be like a a grove of, of, of forest, trees that are popping up everywhere. Or it's going to be like an orchard, like a, a vineyard or an apple orchard or an orange orchard that just that spreads and grows. And that is exactly what happened. A man named Vince Bantu, who's a church historian, he wrote a book called A Multitude of All Peoples. And in that Vince Bantu shows and argues how the early church from the second century spread to Egypt. And we have documents of the New Testament and, and the Bible. In, in, and we have church hierarchy and church structure already in Egypt in the second century. In the mid-fourth century, the church Christianity was the predominant religion in Ethiopia. How did it get to Ethiopia already? By the third century, Syriac-speaking Christian merchants, businessmen, were taking the gospel along the Silk Road. It went to Central Asia, Asia and as far as China in the mid-sixth century. Our Indian brothers and sisters sometimes say that Christianity came to India through St. Thomas, the disciple. We know for sure that it came no later than the third century, there was a profound and strong Christian presence in India. So Bantu concludes, and I quote, he says, the gospel spread rapidly across the continents of Africa and Asia and took on indigenous forms. And he says, despite the persisting association of Christian faith with Western culture slash whiteness, he says, Christianity has always been a global religion that spread from Jerusalem in every direction. That's even more so today. So in 1900, 80% of the followers of Jesus lived in the global north. Canada, the United States, primarily Western Europe, Eastern Europe. Now, 121 years later, that has completely flipped. 
70% of the followers of Jesus today live in the global south, the non-Western part of the world. So that's why Paul could say, it's spreading all throughout the world. This is going to move. This is going to be embraced by people from every tribe and nation and tongue, as it says in the book of Revelation. So that's the spread of the gospel. What about the content of the gospel? Because this is really important to get. Um, And when I say content, I don't just mean intellectual concepts. I mean that, but I also mean power, the power of the gospel. The gospel comes with power. My son was telling me, he said, you know, Dad, it's really interesting. In America, a lot of preachers talk about the love of God, the grace of God. And that's a great topic. But in Papua New Guinea, preachers often talk about the power of God. Because the power of God is the manifestation of the grace of God. And if God cannot deliver people from the bondage of of evil spirits, and God cannot deliver people from hatred and animosity, and if God cannot deliver people from violence and sexual immorality, then it's no gospel to the people of Papua New Guinea. So there is a power to the gospel. So when I talk about content, I mean both. So let me read those verses again, verses 12 through 14, because this is really the, the uh, really um, concise definition of the content of the gospel. So St. Paul says this. He says, giving thanks to the Father for what? What do we give thanks to God for as Christians? He says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, there are three active past tense verbs in this passage. There are things that God has done. Is he going to do them? No, he's already done them. He can still do them, but he's done them. And who did it? God. Did you do it? No, God did it. And New Testament scholars said that this this little passage here is just is rich with language from the Exodus in the Old Testament. So think of this group of beleaguered, demoralized, oppressed slaves trapped in Egypt. They have no way to get out. And God comes in power and he delivers them. He brings them out of slavery into a new land, into a new inheritance. That's the picture behind this. And notice those three words, they're past tense. So it is God has done, done, done. So why is that so important? Because many of us here and many of us in our culture and many cultures around the world What we think of when we think of religion or we think of a good life, we think of do, do, do. It's up to you to do, do, do. It's up to you to get your act together. The good news of the gospel is what God has done in Jesus, and we get to receive and reap those benefits and then live in response to them. That's what we celebrate every Sunday around the Lord's table. So let's look at those three duns. The first done is, in verse 12, he says, he has qualified you. So we have instances often in our lives where we have to qualify for something. Maybe you have to qualify for school. You have to qualify for a job. You have to qualify for 
uh, um, an orchestra. You have to qualify for a sports team. You have to qualify to pass your, your license test, or you have to qualify for citizenship in this country. There's all kinds of ways that we have to qualify. And what's happening when you qualify? You're, you're becoming fit. You're becoming capable. You're becoming smart enough. You're becoming good enough. You're becoming qualified. How do you get in? How do you get into that job? How do you get into that relationship? How do you get into that school? How do you get into that program? You qualify yourself. It's do, do, do. What does the gospel say? God qualified you. It's done. God qualified you. And it's not limited to one race or country or ethnicity. So in the, in the Exodus, they came out of the Exodus and they got land. That was their inheritance. What do we get? We don't get specific land, but we get something else. And Paul talks about it later in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. He says that to, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles That's all the nations, all people groups are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is our inheritance? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And next week, you're going to, I think if you continue the Colossians series next week, you're going to hear about who this Christ actually is, who it is that you have within you and why Paul could say that that is the hope of glory. God did this. It's done. I remember I was um, three years ago when I visited Papua New Guinea. My son took me to this little tiny bush church. And that's what it's called because it's in the bush. It's just you have to drive there and it's perilous to get there. And you, you climb up this big hill and, and then you park your car because it's too muddy. And then you walk up the hill and there's this little village. And in this little village, there's a church. And the church has a dirt floor with with uh, straw on the floor and uh, reeds on the side. It's basically a plant-based building, and there's 80 people packed in there. And during that service, there was a testimony time, and this, this old mama stood up, and she gave a testimony in, in the local dialect, and I, I didn't understand it, so I asked my son to translate it, and she said, he said, well, she said that she has cancer, and she's probably going to die, and she, she knows she will probably die, and the Lord might heal her, and that'll be great, but if, she does, if the Lord doesn't heal her, she's going to go to heaven, and that fills her with incredible joy. And I thought, what an astounding thing. Here in the bush, here in the middle of nowhere, this poor woman that nobody's ever heard of, she's not famous. She doesn't have a social media account. She doesn't have a platform. She doesn't have power. And she stands up, and she proclaims the gospel in that church on Sunday. God qualified her. That's what the gospel does all over the world. Second thing God's done, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He brought us out, Old Testament, remember, Exodus language, he brought us out of oppression. He brought us out from bondage. He did it. Now, in an early, well, let me, let me tell a story. So, well, actually, so in an earlier draft of this, um, sermon, I wanted to, I had a list of things that would be like examples of domain of darkness in our culture. But let me tell you a story first and why I'm not going to do that. So um, I was in Joss, Nigeria, and there was a bishop of the Anglican church, Bishop Timothy, and he was 
he was presenting a workshop, and he was, I was the only non-African there, non-Nigerian there, and he was railing against the problems in his country, the, the violence, the political corruption, the economic corruption and greed of not only the people of Nigeria, but the Western multinational corporations. He was railing against the prosperity gospel and the desire to just get rich and to use God as a, as a means to do that. And then he turned to me, all of a sudden he turned to me, the only American in the audience, and he pointed his finger at me and he said, and dear brother, don't think that we're the only culture that has problems. You live and come from a dying civilization. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> your civilization is immoral and corrupt as well. It was a good word. So I want to, I guess the question I want to ask you this morning to ponder, to pray about, is where has the domain of darkness have a grip on you this morning? Because we live in a culture where it is almost impossible to get out of this loop of like, the darkness is in them. It's in him. It's in her. It's in that political party. It's in that group of people. But it's not in me. It's not in us. So the thing I want to ask you, invite you, challenge you to pray about is, as you walk with the Lord Jesus, as you come to worship, as you confess your sins, as you come to the Lord's table, where's the domain of darkness in me? And where do I need to ask the Lord, Lord, you've done this, so apply it to my life right in this area. Where does the darkness have a grip on me? Lord, that's where I want to meet you today in that domain of darkness. We give thanks to the Father because he's delivered us. And we can experience that and encounter that. The third done is the word transferred. In verse 13, he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Or the son he loves so very much is another way to translate it. That word was used for when a king would take people from one country and forcibly exile them to another country. People would have been familiar with that concept because kings and rulers and people in power could do that. Just say, hey, you people, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to move you over here. But here, St. Paul uses that as a positive thing. God has picked us up from the domain of darkness and he hasn't exiled us. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the son whom he loves so very much. The beloved community he's put us into. And then he adds something else at the end of verse 14. He adds this great phrase, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a great little phrase. The forgiveness of sins. He expands on that in chapter 2 because this, this theme comes up a couple times in Colossians. And he says that God has not only made us alive together with Christ, but he's forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
It's an image of a, of a list, a record, a document that has all of our sins on it, all the things we've done and left undone. Throughout our whole life, there's a document. It's been documented. It's been recorded. And, and this passage tells us that what Jesus did on the cross was to take that document, that list, that record, and actually nail it to the cross with Jesus. So it's gone. It's not ours to bear anymore. That's part of this transferring into the kingdom of, the, of his son whom he loves so much. You know, when we discover the gospel, when we discover the content and the power of the gospel, it should constantly leave us a little bewildered and confused. Like, what? Really? I don't know. That sounds too good to be true. That is the feeling that leaves us often. It's not do, 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 but done, done, done. I was watching my four-year-old grandson playing soccer this last um, summer, and uh, there was a, a mom on the sidelines that was yelling at her four-year-old girl, like, kick, get the ball, Susan, kick the ball, Susan, keep trying, Susan. And at one point, Susan just like leaves the game and she turns to her mom like this. She goes, Mom, I am trying. What happens when God speaks to your heart and says, done, done, done? What level of self-acceptance will you experience? What level of freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from condemnation, freedom from bondage to addictions and compulsive habits and hatred and animosity and resentment and what level of freedom, what kind of life is possible? That's the content of the gospel. Now, let me just talk a couple minutes about the fruit of the gospel because the New Testament letters are always, here's what God has done, 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 and now here's how you once you receive that, and once it starts to just do its work in your life, here's how you can respond to that. Because there is a do, 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 and there is a don't, but it's always after the done, done, done. So one of the things that Paul says in this letter later, so in chapter 3, he gets into, okay, here's how you respond as a Christian community. Here's the virtues that you begin to take on. Here's the vices that you begin to let go of. And he lists some of these. Some of them are what we would call personal things like anger, wrath, malice, slander. He also mentions sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, covetousness. But in verse 11, he gives us a little hint of the social dimensions of the gospel. And he has, there's this incredible little verse where he says that we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. So Christ has not only forgiven us, but he's renewing us. He's bringing us back to what we were supposed to be and what we were supposed to be like. And then he says this, here in this new community, in the kingdom of his beloved son, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It is a revolutionary verse. It's, it's hard for us to imagine how much the, the Jews and the Greeks did not like each other and did not trust each other and the animosity that they had, or barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. 
But Christ is all and in all. In this community called the church, he is all and in all. Or as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright translates that, Christ is, Christ is all and in all. Or literally, N.T. Wright says that, that Christ is in all people. Or in the words of Jesus, when you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to me. So we see others in and through Jesus. So if we ignore someone with disabilities, we have ignored Jesus. If, as we did in this country, we asked certain people, black people, to to use a different bathroom or drink from a different fountain or or go to a different restaurant or use a different hotel or, or they can only go to a certain part of the hospital wing, not to mention lynchings and unjust incarcerations, we have not seen people in Jesus. We've degraded Jesus. When we declare the gospel, but we force our narrow Western ideas and ideology on people, we have degraded them. Somebody whom we're supposed to see in and through Jesus. As N.T. Wright says, No one must allow prejudices from their pre-Christian days to distort the new humanity in and through Jesus. That's one of the fruits of done, done, done. Now, has Christian missions always lived up to this? Have we always lived up to this in this country? No, absolutely not. Sometimes we have failed greatly, and it should break our hearts. On the other hand, If you get involved in missions, I guarantee you, you will fail greatly sometimes. We do have this built-in corrective, though, right in the center of our faith. It's called repentance and confession. We remember our baptismal vows that we were claimed as Christ and we belong to him. We come to the Lord's table in the Eucharist and we get reoriented to who we are as a people and the kind of community we're supposed to create. We come back to our starting point. So I started with that quote from the cultural anthropologist. And since I know a lot of people now in Papua New Guinea, I called one of my friends, a pastor there, a national pastor named Pastor Marilyn Watsik. And I asked her, I read her these quotes. She's a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene that my son is a part of. And I read her these quotes from this cultural anthropologist, and I said, what do you think of that? And she said, uh, she was disoriented. She was confused. She said, wait a minute, he's talking about our country? I said, yeah, he's talking about Papua New Guinea. That's where he's a cultural anthropologist. He said he spent a lot of time there, but actually, if you look in the footnotes, he's actually visited five times for a total of a year and a half, but those were his conclusions. And she said, she said, I'm, I'm confused, because that doesn't describe our country. And then she got angry. And then she got like Martin Luther King Jr. on me. You know, she was just like, like preaching with this like rhythmic thing. She said, this man does not know our country at all. This man does not know that it's the church that is today, that is going to the rural places where the government cannot go, to the darkest places, to the most hidden places to some of the most hidden tribal groups to provide medical care, to provide education, to lift up the role of women. It's the church that's bringing the light of Christ. It's the church that's delivering people from sexual immorality and violence 
and hatred and animosity and bitterness. It's the church that's doing that. This man, this man does not know our country at all. Now, someone might say, well, that's because she's just not enlightened yet. And she, she, she is just sort of living under this. She's lived under colonialism so long, she doesn't even know what colonialism is. And I would say, is that not the epitome of colonialism, to say that about her? To say, we don't trust your opinion on this because we have better ideas of what you should think and feel. Now, again, the church has failed many times. But I do love the way uh, there's a Christian scholar named Dana L. Robert. She wrote, wrote a book called Christian Mission, How Christianity Became a World Religion. And she said this. She said, the term missionary is caricatured as representing a white man in a pith helmet preaching to unwilling natives. And then she said, yet over 2,000 years of Christianity, the missionary is likely to have been a Korean couple working among university students in China or an Indian medical doctor tending to refugees or a Tongan family living in a Fijian village, or a Nestorian trader making his living and sharing the gospel along the Silk Road. That's another story. They stand side by side because we're sinners and because we're not triumphalistic. We don't have a triumphalistic message like the church has always been amazing, the church has always done well. We have a humble message of we have not always followed our Lord and Savior. We have always, we have left things, we have done things that we ought not to have done. We have left things undone. That's why we need to come back to the gospel over and over and over again. And that's why every Sunday we come to the Lord's table and we remember the message of the cross, that the king of the universe became powerless for us. He became humble for us. He washed the feet of the world and we have not always lived up to that. And therefore, we repent and we confess our sins. But we also hear the good news that God has qualified us, that God has delivered us, that God has transferred us. And now, filled with love and joy and gratitude, we ask the question, how am I going to give my life what kind of steps of risk am I going to take to bring the gospel to this world? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.